In the mid-90s, Sega released a trio of handheld consoles, hoping to carve out their own piece of the success seen by Nintendo's Game Boy. In each case, they sought out to create something technologically superior to Nintendo's offering, hoping to win people over with the prospect of something bigger and better. What did they release? And how did they do? Well, we'll talk about that and more. It's going to be a quick episode today, so join us for today's quick trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 110th episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we tell you the story about one game, or in today's case, a trio of consoles relevant to the current week in gaming history. While telling you said story, we hope to teach you something new about the consoles, what they took from the world as their inspiration, or what they gave back to the world as their legacy. This week, we are looking back at Sega's handheld trio, two of which hold releases in October of their respective years, 1990 and 1995. So here we are. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who just really enjoys tiny handheld things. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's the fascination with tiny hand-holding? Well, Dave, I don't really have giant hands, so... The small things make them look bigger. <laughs> if you remember. For those who don't, go watch Deadpool and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, man. Or uh, It's Always Sunny has a, a lawyer who has a fascination with hands. Oh, my goodness. How you doing? I'm doing well, Dave. How about yourself? I am sick, and we are going to muster through this as best as possible. Makes my voice a little more sultry. That should make it enjoyable for some of our audience. But, uh, yeah, we're going to do the best we can with this. So let's start out with the typical question. What are we playing? Well, Dave, this week has seen some Rocket League. A little bit of Hacker Simulator and Building Simulator. Uh, trying them out, see how they are. Uh, we did some Grounded. Mm-hmm. Uh... Yeah, that's it. No RuneScape this week, surprisingly. Wow. I know. Crazy. Crazy. How about yourself? What have you been up to? Rocket League and Grounded. I don't believe there's been anything else. Wow, how lame. I know. I know. All right, so Sega's handheld trio. I'm going to ask you right off the bat, do you know what the three handhelds that Sega made are? Uh... Game Boy, the Advanced, and the DS. I know you're kidding. I I I feel personally attacked right now. That like, I just feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> that was so you can, you can that hurt. You know that right? Like that physically hurt my soul. That's what I shoot for, Dave. Yeah, very true. I know this. That's what younger brothers are for. So let's try this again. Maybe with less of pain. Do you know any of the three handhelds that Sega made? Isn't the Game Gear one of them? The Game Gear is one of them. 
the Game Gear is one of them, and I genuinely don't expect you to know either of the others. I would assume that most people don't know either of the others. Yeah, the only other Sega model I know is the Genesis, and uh, I don't think that was handheld. No, it was not. It was not. Well, so Sega made three handhelds. One is really only a semi-portable handheld, and we'll get to that in a moment. But over the course of all their um, years, Sega made one handheld. Do you know any other Sega consoles in the Genesis? You do. Um, the Dreamcast. Yes. Do you know what came before the Genesis? Uh, as far as Sega? Yeah. No. I thought the, just Atari and maybe Nintendo. No, they had a Nintendo competitor. It was called the... Um, it was called the Master System. The Genesis was the same generation as the Super Nintendo. Oh, yeah. Nope. Didn't know that. Never heard of the Master System. Must not have uh, been a good master. No, no, it was not. So, given the fact that I'm losing my voice, we're going to keep this short and sweet today. We're going to fly through it. That should be that should be uh, something that a whole lot of people like. But I still want to be able to tell my story this week as best I can. So here goes. You mentioned the Game Boy. Game Boy was, of course, Nintendo's handheld system. One of the most popular handheld systems of all time. And it came out in 1989, and it was just a flat-out runaway success. Uh, it comes as no surprise to you know, what we know now. Um, and so, not surprisingly, pretty much all the other video game manufacturers quickly wanted to jump into the handheld market. There really weren't handheld systems before then. I mean, we N Nintendo had the Game & Watch, and, you know, Mattel and them played the, made these little, like, you know, LED one-off games. But, the, you know, the Game Boy was the first system system, you know, and everyone jumped into it. LCD, by the way. What did I say? LED. Oh, yeah, LCD. No, I meant LED. Pretty I sure meant there were three-frame LCD. No, I meant LED. Uh, some of the old electronic games, like handheld ones, were literally just things that lit up when you pressed buttons. Like, football was just a bunch of LEDs that went across the screen. Look up handheld systems from, like, the 70s. No no joke. They, were, they, were, they weren't screens. They were lights that just lit up. So, oh, well, uh, fair uh, enough. Stand corrected. I remember playing with them at our grandmother's house. Um, I vaguely remember that. I don't know where they came from. So, anyway, football is the one that sticks out in my mind. So yeah, so the Game Boy came out, everyone wanted one, and of course, everyone wanted a piece of the pie. So all the other video game manufacturers, you know, looked to make their own um, handhelds. Atari made the Lynx, if I'm not mistaken. There were some others. Sega had just released the Genesis. We were just talking about the Genesis, which of course competes with the Super Nintendo. And so they were looking to compete with the Game Boy in the handheld market. So... Their idea was that they wanted to make a portable version of their master system, which, we, as we just talked about, was their their third-generation console that competed with the NES. The general idea was that they wanted to make a more powerful system than the Game Boy to win gamers over to their side. And right off the bat, they knew that they wanted their design to include a full-color screen because they wanted to win people over to the prospect of playing handheld games in color, as opposed to the little monochrome screen that the Game Boy had. So on top of this, they also modeled the Game Gear after their Genesis controller, hoping that uh, its curved surface 
and longer length would make it more comfortable to hold than the Game Boy. And this is also, you know, the Game Boy has a very square screen. It's ver a vertical system, but the Game Gear and the controller is very much a horizontal screen. Well, Dave, so you happen to say that it's horizontal, so kind of like an early uh, 3DS or DS or PlayStation Portable or something kind of style? Yeah, essentially. So making the system landscape, they felt was going to make it easier for video game developers to port games over to the Game Gear. Uh, for instance, what they really wanted to do was port their Master System games over to the Game Gear. And because they were both the same format, uh, screen screen orientation, it was going to be a direct port from one to the other. So basically, they took largely what was their master system, and they made it a portable system. I mean, they are almost the same technologically on the inside. However, the Game Gear has a larger color palette, so the master system, when it came out, could only support 64 colors. Well, the Game Gear, with the current technology, could support 4,096. They could port the games over and make them look better, basically. I mean... All in all, it was technologically superior to the Game Boy, but that came at a cost. And this is honestly why, in the end, the Game Boy ended up being the, the winner, the superior um, system out of the bunch. The Game Boy, and this is, we've talked about this before when we were talking about Yokoi and all of them who developed the, um, the Game Boy. And one day we may do a, a more so of a Game Boy episode. I think we talked about it when we talked about Super Mario Land. Um, they kept the Game Boy basic with its monochrome screen because of battery time. The Game Boy took four AA batteries and it could run for 30 hours. Whereas the Game Gear took six AA's, it can only run for three to five hours. Well, yeah, that's uh, quite the difference in time <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, that's quite the difference in time. Um, so that ended up being a big slam against the Game Gear. And again, whenever... Video game historians, whenever we talk about, you know, the discussion comes up for why. Why did the Game Boy take over? Why was the Game Boy? I mean, it was almost like four to one sales of, I think the Game Gear sold 11 million and the uh, Game Boy sold 40 some in that first generation or something like that. The battery life, the battery life always comes up. So they knew what they wanted designed, but at this point they were almost a year behind. So... They, they rushed the Game Gear into production, and they released it to the world on October 6, 1990, which was 32 years ago. The game that was included with the Game Gear was Columns. Have you ever heard of Columns, Rob? Um, aren't those the things that hold up buildings? They are. Very, very true. And that was kind of the concept of the game, too, but not really. It was a puzzle game. They were columns, uh, like color matching is what you would do, and they would come down as columns, like three and four line columns, basically. So, so Tetris with colors? Well, Tetris uses uh, the different shapes, and this was just lines that you would match colors. Kind of like how they, you know, it's, it's a color match, like a three color match type one. That makes sense? Not shapes? Sure. Sure, we'll go with that. But yeah, so they include a puzzle game. It was Columns. So what's important to know is that Sega had positioned itself with the Genesis as a more mature option to the family-oriented Super Nintendo. And they continued this approach with the Game Gear. 
you know when it came to the genesis they had mortal Kombat without you know mortal Kombat on the sega version had blood mortal Kombat on the super nintendo did not they censored it some of the most popular sega genesis games were sport games which the, which catered to a more mature audience and so between stuff like that and the sport games the genesis was always viewed and marketed as a more mature option and and so they brought this you know that that same energy into the game gear and frankly they just threw off the gloves when they were doing it um marketing for the game gear included side-by-side comparisons with game boy and it likened game boy players to the obese and uneducated one sega ad featured the quote if you were colorblind and had an IQ of less than 12, you wouldn't mind which portable you had. Well, that sounds like modern gaming in a nutshell. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you could say it was toxicity before gaming toxicity was really a thing. Their marketing campaign angered a lot of people. So It was suggested that people protest against Sega. They were perceived as having insulted disabled people. Sega, of course, would respond to the outrage with their president saying that, and I quote, Nintendo should spend more time improving their products and marketing rather than working on behind-the-scenes cohesive stuff. The Game Gear was around from about 1990 until the year 2000. Sega stopped making them in 1997, and then they licensed out, they licensed out their, actually both the Genesis and the Game Gear, to Majesco Entertainment, uh, who, in this case, produced a budget version of the Game Gear, and then they discontinued it in the year 2000. Over this lifespan, there were some cool accessories for it. You could actually buy a TV tuner with an antenna, which let people watch live TV on their Game Gear. And I think that's pretty cool, actually. You have something similar with that, with the, the Super Nintendo, or the Nintendo? Or was that just a receiver that you could splice it into your tv and the antenna uh i don't know of any of the others that played live tv that like you could literally use your game gear as a tell a portable television which was oh, really portable cool. yeah oh shit yeah i missed the portable part yeah no that's a good point that's yeah no unique. no it put an antenna on the game gear so you could watch tv like portable handheld on the go okay that's pretty freaking awesome you know, although the Game Gear was designed as a portable version of the Master System, it didn't actually play Master System games without an accessory, which was called the Master Gear. Uh, so that was interesting. And over its lifespan, they released some variations on the plain black Game Gear 2. <clears throat> uh, it was released in different colors. There was a blue sports version, typically called the blue sports version, but it could come with either World Series Baseball 95 or the Lion King, which I guess is a sport. Uh, damn straight it is. There was a red Coca-Cola version that came bundled with a game called Coca-Cola Kid. Uh, I had to look that one up. It was exclusive to Japan, and it featured the Coca-Cola Kid, who was Coca-Cola's Japanese mascot throughout the 90s. Um, it was a timed platform game when you have to you know, work your way through a, a platform level with the timer. And that's it. There's not much more to it than that, but I've never heard of the Coca-Cola Kid before. What do you mean, Dave? He's a national icon. Yeah. Speaking of Japanese exclusives, Japan got the Kids Gear, which was a version of the Game Gear targeted towards kids. I was looking up the Game Gear. I found a Virtual Fighter version uh, that was covered with Virtual Fighter like decals. So it was pretty cool. So they were just you know more kid friendly, you know designs. I guess you could say of the Game Gear. Rob, have you ever had a chance to play a Game Gear? 
I have not had a chance to play one now. I don't remember who had one, but I do remember playing one as a kid. But the only game I can recall playing on it was Sonic. I played Columns, so maybe I maybe that had to be out of Game Gear too. Um, but yeah, um, it had a pretty robust library. There were 356 games made specifically for it over all those years. The biggest ones were Game Gear versions of all the big hits, like said Sonic the Hedgehog. They made a Game Gear version of Road Rash. There were Game Gear versions of Mortal Kombat, um, and so on and so forth. I looked up some lists of best Game Gear titles of all time. Uh, most of them listed a game called The Land of Illusion, starring Mickey Mouse as its best game. So there's that. And I would like to note before I move on, because that's about what I have in the game gear for today, that in celebration of Sega's 60th anniversary back in 2020, on October 6th of 2020, no less, that Sega released the Game Gear Micro. It was a tiny Game Gear that fit in the palm of your hand with a one-inch screen. Uh, and they made four different ones, four different colored ones. Each they had four different games preloaded on it. It also only used two double A's, and I'm guess it la- guessing that they lasted more than three to five hours. I would sure hope so. So in 1990, we had the Game Gear. But on the console side of things, the Sega Genesis was doing very well. And I want to talk a little bit about the Genesis, because their next handheld is related to it. Uh, someday we're going to do a Genesis episode, so I'm not going to dive into it too much. But I'm just going to do a really quick, quick, a really quick overview uh, a really quick overview of the Sega. No, you're not, Dave. And with that, the Sega Genesis, also known as the Mega Drive outside North America, was a fourth-generation <laughs> 16-bit home console, released by Sega in Japan on October 29, 1988. Oh? It was the second most popular console of its generation, coming in behind the Super Nintendo. True. Sega manufactured and sold the console from 1988 until 1997, upon which... It was licensed to Majesco, who produced a budget Genesis 3 model until 1999. Over this period of time, it sold a little over 30 million units. The 10 best-selling titles included Sonic the Hedgehog 1, 2, and 3, Ooh. Sonic and Knuckles, Wow. Disney's Aladdin, Can't beat that one. Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, I believe we've done an episode on that. I believe we have as well. And NBA Jam, come on and slam! We did an th- episode on that one too. Indeed. Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition. We haven't done the second Street Fighter, but we did the first one. Yeah, we did. And rounding out the list, Altered Beast. Altered Beast was a fun game. The Genesis had a very robust game library. So, so much so that during its lifespan... There were 878 licensed games released for the console. Very true. So do you know how this relates to their portable titles? Not a damn clue, Dave. I just know <laughs> about the Genesis. <laughs> All right. So in 93, Sega developed a semi-portable handheld version of the Genesis called the Mega Jet. Now, you're probably asking yourself what a semi-portable console is. And I'm going to tell you. But first, I'm going to need you to buckle up your seatbelts and make sure that your seats are in the upright position because I'm about to land this plane. In a matter of speaking. Uh, so the mega-, mega jet plane. Yeah, uh. get it, get it, get it. It's about to make more sense. So the mega jet was a console that was marketed towards airline travelers. 
It was a portable version of the Mega Drive that was available to rent aboard Japan airline flights. So at this time, many Japan airline planes had small LCD displays that were installed into the armrests of each set. It was really cool. They like folded into the armrests and then you could fold it up and flip it in front of you, basically. Like these little tiny screens. And so what they basically... things were just a part of the Japan planes at first at first basically the mega jet was designed as a form of entertainment that passengers could rent for their their flights it it needed its own power supply external power supply it needed its own display of course these were readily available in the planes it was it was made for the planes so airline passengers could pay to basically rent a mega jet and they could plug it into the little lcd screen in their armchairs and play Mega Drive or Genesis games. We call it the Genesis. The airlines did have some games they could rent. Sonic the Hedgehog was one of them. I think uh, Monaco Monaco <laughs> uh, Monaco GP was another. But since the system played any Mega Drive title, many just brought their own games along. Um, I'll post an article about it on our website, which of course is www.memorycardlane.com. But if you have no intention of checking it out yourself, it basically looks like a giant square oversized Genesis controller with a cartridge slot on top. That's it. There's D-pad, there's six buttons, start, select, and the controller slot on top. It was largely considered a novelty, even more so that Alpine worked with Sega to create an Alpine brand version of the MegaJet that could be used exclusively with their Alpine in-car displays. The Alpine model came with Sonic 3, a car power adapter, and an AV cable that would let you plug it into Alpine monitors. Then, in 1994, Sega released, in Japan only, a retail version of the Megajet, but it really never saw any success, uh, and it, it just kind of fell to the wayside. I looked them up on eBay. You can pick one up. They're, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a novelty piece of video game history. They're about 500 bucks on eBay nowadays. And somewhere in here, somewhere in all these years, Sega was looking to create a new handheld system to replace the Game Gear. At first, they wanted to produce a system with a touchscreen, because touchscreen technology was relatively new, uh, because they wanted to be the first handheld with the technology. I think, who made it? Bandai, the Wonder Swan? I don't remember. Someone else was ended up doing that. But Sega thought that the touchscreen technology was too expensive, and so... They basically looked back to their MegaJet for inspiration. Um, and what they came up with was a version of the MegaJet that had a screen. And they called this the Genesis Nomad. It was all the power and the technology of the Sega Genesis uh, squeezed into a little handheld with a three and a quarter inch backlit screen. I mean, literally, its insides are nearly identical to the Sega Genesis. The only difference is that it's completely self-sufficient and it lacks the expansion ports to hook up to the Sega CD or 32X. And you can't have the adapter for the Mega System game, so it can only play Genesis titles. Otherwise, it was a portable Sega Genesis that had the ability to plug a power cord into it, and it also had a TV output, meaning that it was the only handheld at, its, at the time that could hook up to a TV. So... Think like the Switch, Rob, that we can play portably, but then you could hook it up to the TV and, and play the same games on the TV. The second Nomad actually did that way back in 1995, um, which is kind of cool. That's 
kind of crazy. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, the next closest he really got was with the Game Boy Advance once they had the adapter for the GameCube, as far as I know. I mean, maybe there's other things that I'm not aware of, but uh, to think that they had that technology as far back as that, and it took so long for Nintendo to uh, kind of create something similar. Yeah, it's a cool concept, though. Uh, the Nomad also has one controller port, so you could actually hook up a Genesis controller to it and play multiplayer games. The controller port is only recognized as player two. So the downside is that you can actually hook up a Genesis uh, controller and play single player games with the controller. You had to play single player games with the controller itself, with the handheld itself. But you could play two player games by hooking up a controller to this random controller port on it. So it also ran on six double A's, but uh, it was worse than the Game Gear. On six double A's, you could only play for two to three hours of gameplay. Now, the Nomad was only released here in North America. Uh, it uses regional lockout, so it's specific to over here. It only plays North American games. I- I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember the Nomad in any way, shape, or form. I'm surprised by that. I mean, 95 would have been, I would have been 11 and well into my video gaming years. But I don't remember the Nomad in any way, shape, or form. Have you ever heard of it before, Rob? Well, yeah, nomads are the ones who travel all around and don't oh really uh, settle down. How could you yeah. not have heard of them, Dave? Come very on, jeez. Tr- yeah, very true. Yeah, so I hadn't heard of the nomad. You can find them on eBay nowadays for about three to five hundred dollars, but you know, back then it was basically a portable Sega Genesis at, that also hooked up to a TV, which is a really novel concept. And that's that's the trio, Rob. That's that's all three. That's all three. Have you ever heard of any of them before? Well, you heard of the Game Gear. Yeah, no, that that that's realistically the only one that I had heard of. Uh, never heard of the Nomad, nor had I heard of uh, the Mega Jet. Yeah, the Mega Jet was and the Nomad were new to me too. Mega Jet's kind of cool. I didn't. I, I I I don't know. You should look at pictures of it. It's literally just a square with a controller slot in it, and it's like a square controller. So I didn't even know anything like that existed. I didn't even know I'd ever. I'd ever have to say the concept semi-portable, <laughs> so. Yeah, it's definitely not something you think of when you think of gaming. I mean, you either, well, you know, in a sense, though, if you really stop and think about it, is not the Switch semi-portable? I consider the Switch a fully portable console. But there's, I, I guess it could be looked at of one of two ways when you're saying semi. Is it that it has to be one or the other, or is it that it can be one or the other? Yeah, I mean, it technically isn't portable at all because you have to have your own screen for it. I mean, that, that puts it in the same boat as any other console. But this one happened to be small enough that you could plug it into small screens. But technically, you could plug normal systems into small screens too. So maybe maybe semi-portable is not right. Technically, it's not portable, but it is handheld. It's more akin to those, like, games that you can plug directly into tvs nowadays you, you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah like an atari yeah those little yeah those little yeah yeah you're right you're right <laughs> i mean in reality that's all it you, you had the rca cables you plugged them in and there you go you could do it to any tv that had rcas very true very true all right well that's sega's handheld trio i'm not gonna keep going on it just i said quick and concise because i i don't have the voice for this so we'll keep it short today rob so each week we tell you a story oh wait no i got i can't go out of order hey look we talked about street fighter we talked about sonic the hedgehog 
what else, what other game did we talk about that you could the popular games for the for the Genesis? Humana, 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 Mortal Kombat, NBA Jam. These are all games we've talked about in previous episodes. If you'd like to check out said previous episodes, check out the show notes, take a look at the picture of the Genesis uh, Nomad. All this can be found on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. You can find a calendar of upcoming events. You can find... What else can they find, Rob? Well, Dave, you can find a picture of both of us. You can find a description, you know, a little blurb from Dave and not Rob, even though we're two years in. Uh, they can find uh, links to our Patreon, as well as links to our social media. I can be found on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. And David, where can they find you? I'm on various platforms as David is wrong. So each week we tell you a story. This week it was a, a quick story about the second handheld trio. And um, while doing so, we hope to tell you about where they got their inspiration from or the legacy they left behind or just teach you something new about, in this case, the consoles in general. I mean, you know, as part of that, we acknowledge that we learn new things while teaching you. That's the best part about getting to do this every single week. So... We like to go back and talk about our biggest takeaways. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I obviously didn't know anything about the Nomad or the Mega Jet, but to know that there was a console this early on that was able to play uh, well, a portable console that this early on that was able to play games from a standalone console, uh, you know, it's kind of i mean nowadays it's a lot more of a not a normal concept it's kind of like oh cool i could download any game i want on my vast library of games or even just you know like i mentioned earlier with the gamecube you could take Game Boy advance games and plug it into the tv um that was kind of cool seeing on the big screen but to know that there was a console as far back as 93 that was able to take a, a game that was just always plugged into the tv you could never go anywhere and slap it in a, a portable device and walk around and play you know, it's kind of cool to think about how early on this technology started and just getting an idea of how far we've come since then. But in realism, it's gotten better technology, but we're still doing the same thing, just a little differently. True. Very, very true. So uh, definitely a lot of things. I mean, it would have been kind of cool to have seen the Mega Jet in person to be able to rent a video game on a plane. You know, they always tell you to turn your phones off, but here they're like, hey, Here's the game to play. Have fun. Have at it. Very true. Uh, definitely a lot of cool facts. So yeah, I'm. Uh, this was a, a very good learning experience for me. How about yourself? What did you enjoy learning this week? The, I never knew the Mega Jet existed. That's pretty cool. I, um, I. It always amazes me when things escape me. I'd never heard about anything like that. I mean, why would I have heard anything about that? It was a Japanese exclusive console in the mid '90s, but I just I like the novelty of a, a, a game system you can rent on a plane and plug into a little LCD TV screen that literally flips out of your armrest. It, it's, it's super cool. And I, I've never seen it. And I, I get amazed by some, something across systems, especially like this early on. I accept that the first generation and even the second, the, 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 I'll never see all the systems from the first generation. There were hundreds of systems in the first generation, but as you go to further generations, the second, the third, we're already here at the fourth. There were, a dozen maybe a dozen consoles you know now we've got what five realistically 
but there were maybe a dozen consoles. So whenever I get surprised by one I'd never heard of, it's always a surprise. And so that's pleasant for me. So, yeah. All right, Rob. Well, on that note, I'm going to get ready to take it out of here. But before I do so, what would you like to add? Well, Dave, would like to start off by saying that uh, we do apologize for being a shorter episode. Obviously, there's not a lot of critic reviews or things we can find from these that don't really try to relate it to modern games like the Nintendo Switch. So our best recommendation is that if you buy had some miracle, manage to get your hands on one of these to try it for yourself. Absolutely do. But if not, do some research, learn some things about them yourself and kind of give us our own reviews. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Maybe you have some old memories of these consoles because you happen to be flying on a plane in Japan, you lucky bastard, and you got to try the Mega Jet. That'd be pretty cool to hear about. Uh, you know, we just love to hear from you. But we do want to say thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, definitely a shorter episode this week, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to provide you with the best stuff that we can. And, uh, I mean, listen to Dave. He sounds like absolute dog shit, and he's still here talking away. Talk, talk, yeah, talking yeah. away. I try. So... We enjoy being here. We hope that you enjoy listening. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Back to you, Dave. On that note, on to next week, in which we are going to look at the golden standard for post-apocalyptic video games. In fact, that's in its title. Fallout, a post-nuclear role-playing game, was released for DOS and Windows PCs on October 10th, 1997. It tells the story of the Vault Dweller, who must search a barren wasteland for a computer chip that can fix the water supply and the underground vault in which he lives. Now Fallout is a popular series that has sold millions of copies, but where and why did it all begin? Well, that's what we're going to look at as we talk everything Fallout, its influence, its legacies, all that jazz. So stick around and join us next week as we travel the wasteland on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do do da 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 do 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 do.